back to throw Fitzpatrick. Throw it high into the air. Got it. Parker, touchdown. What a win for this Miami Dolphin team. Wow. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins official podcast network covering your Miami Dolphins each and every day. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, it's another edition of the Know the Enemy series as we get closer and closer to training camp. We'll take a look at the Dolphins' week four opponent in the Seattle Seahawks, home to one of the more consistent outfits over the NFL the last decade. We'll discuss Pete Carroll's defense, Russell Wilson's greatness, and how those two work in tandem among a variety of Seahawks topics. All of that and more on this Monday, July the 20th edition of the Drive Time Podcast. That's another Miami Dolphins. And first up today, it's moving week for the Wingfields. We are going to scale back on the podcast this week just a little bit as I didn't really realize how much goes into a cross-country move, so we are in the throes of it right now. I'm going to try to get another podcast out later this week, but by the end of the week, I'll be a South Florida resident, and we'll be coming to you live from South Florida from here forward. And on this edition of The Drive Time, one of my final podcasts here in the Pacific Northwest, we are going to continue our Know the Enemy series with our seventh of 13 teams on the Dolphins 2020 schedule, and do that with a team here in the Northwest with the Seattle Seahawks. We've previewed the Patriots, Bills, Jags, Niners, Broncos. We did the Raiders earlier as well, and we are now moving on to the Seattle Seahawks. The Dolphins play Seattle at home week number four on October the 4th. It's a one o'clock Eastern kickoff to host the Seattle Seahawks. Now, my whole life, I've been asked, why aren't you a Seahawks fan? Because I've never lived outside of Washington State until this week, actually. And I'm a diehard Mariners fan, go M's, a big-time Washington State Cougars supporter, go Cougs. And I was a Supersonics fan, bring them back. But I defected my NFL fandom at a very early age to South Florida and the Miami Dolphins. Perhaps it was that one trip we took to the Kingdome where we didn't go to watch King Griffey Jr. and the 90s Mariners, but rather a bad Seahawks team in 1994 lose to the Bengals in what was a very ugly football game from what I can remember on the turf there at the Kingdome. And maybe it was that basically what the Seahawks were was that type of team up until Mike Holmgren got there in, I believe, 2000, maybe the 2001 season. And by that time, I had already had the aqua and orange coursing through my veins, and they never really were a second team for me like some folks will have with their local team. And I think that actually happens a lot in football. Like, you you guys tell me, did that happen with you where you were an out-of-state Dolphins fan and you grew up with a little bit of disdain for your local team? I was actually a really big Joey Galloway and Sean Springs and Ricky Waters fan that era of Seahawks football. I always thought Matt Hasselbeck was really underrated, was a big Daryl Jackson fan, the wide receiver. But being here local after that 2005 Super Bowl loss, the famed Steelers game, that was brutal, but it definitely got a lot worse when the Seahawks hit their stride in 2012 that resulted in that uh, Super Bowl championship win in 2013. Seahawks fans were in my ear every single day, it seemed like, at that point, 
And the common thread for that team from 2012 through 2020 has been Pete Carroll and, of course, quarterback Russell Wilson. And I think one of the more intriguing stylistic approaches to the game today is how the Seahawks are so committed to the ground game despite Russell Wilson's presence there on the roster. And it does make sense in the sense that if you keep the game close for Russ, he's probably going to find a way to win it at the very end. Hell, He broke my heart at CenturyLink Field on opening day 2016, as I'm sure he did to all you guys out there, all you Dolphins fans out there in Dolphins Nation. When I thought we were going to walk out of there with a big, big upset victory on opening day, but Russ hits a pair of fourth downs on that final drive and made that walk from our seats in the stadium to the car a very long one. But it's a hot debate among Seahawks fans. Should they open it up and give who I believe is the second best quarterback in football behind Patrick Mahomes some more opportunities or should they stay with the philosophy that has led to so many wins winning seasons division titles playoff wins and simply one of the three or four most successful franchises of the last decade or so it's intriguing and to help us out with that and the rest of this 2020 Seahawks team let's welcome in from the Seattle Times Bob Kendota and writing shotgun now on the drive time podcast is Bob Kendota He covers the Seahawks and other sports for the Seattle Times. Bob, welcome in. Hey, yeah, thanks, Travis. How you doing? I'm good. It's good to to see you on here. A fellow uh, Pacific Northwesterner like myself, I'm actually moving out to South Florida this week, so uh, be departing the mountains and going down for the the flatlands of South Florida down there. And I want to start here and put this pressing question to you that I have here off the top and something I actually led into before I welcomed you on the show here today. And the great question about Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson and the Seahawks, their commitment to running the football, and it's a formula that has really bred a bunch of victories over the last you know decade or so, but you also have one of the truly elite quarterbacks in the NFL. Is there a balance they can achieve between those two existences, or is it one of those things where if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think they think they have achieved that balance, and uh, other people obviously disagree with that. You're right. Uh, you know, that, that's a debate that's been going on for a long time, but it's sort of heated up even more maybe in la- last year with the, with the season that Russell had. Um, as you know, it's, this is Pete Carroll's philosophy, it, the way he's always coached football, and he's going to be 69 in September. So I don't know that he's suddenly <laughs> going to just decide everything I've ever thought about football is wrong when he's, you know, he's won national championships in college and in the NFL and, and the most successful coach in Seahawks history and all that. So I think, you know, I don't think he's going to change a whole lot. Um, now, there are some, you know, you can go back and look and they did. You know, there are, have been times in Pete's career where he's where he's thrown it a lot. And I think he feels like the times when there's been that better balance is when he's been more successful. I also think they, they still feel like that suits Russell's game a little bit more. Um, obviously, there have been times like that, a memorable win against Houston in 2017, where they only rest, I think, for 21 yards. And Russell had one of his best games ever, and they beat Deshaun Watson and, and Houston in what was this incredible shootout. And, you know, there's times they're willing to do that and, and open it up and do that. But Pete, but I think they, I think Pete still feels like the passing game is best and in a little smaller dose. I also still think they, they I think they think that fits Russell a little bit better. Um, you know, he is, he, he is a little bit of a unique quarterback. He's obviously shown the ability to do everything, but I still, I'm still not sure they feel like, you know, if you put him in a system where he throws 70% of the time, and this is what I think they think that that's the, that he's, you know, that, that more passing is necessarily better passing, you know, like, like a lot of things in life, something can be great up to a point is more of it, uh, even better, or is more of it going to make it worse? So, um, you know, the, the other thing about it, and they haven't, some of their 
attempts to really make the receiving core elite haven't gone quite the way they'd hoped. Um, you know, they, they have spent a lot of resources trying to do things with the receiving core, going all the way back to, you know, his second year when they signed Sidney Rice and the trade for Percy Harvin and, and some of these things they've done that maybe didn't quite work out the way they'd hoped. Some of the draft picks they've made, um, you know, they spent a lot of draft capital on receivers, really, if you go back and look. Um, and not all of them have really turned out the way they'd hoped. You know, this year now they now they have Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, and they and they when one of their most significant offseason moves was to get Greg Olson, a tight end who, um, you know, if he can be the Greg Olson of, of a few years ago and, and stay healthy, um, you know, even last year he was effective when he was healthy, but I just mean doing it for a full season. If he can if he can do that for a full year, then I think they feel like they've got a really elite guy. If they have better overall receiving weapons, I think I think they'll throw it a little bit more. Um, you know, I think they've they've always played a little bit to their talent and things like that. And and like I say, you know, last year they went into the year they didn't have Doug Baldwin. They didn't know for sure what they were going to have out of DK Metcalf. So I think they went into this. It was another season where they're like, we've got Chris Carson and Rashad Penny and and some things like that, and, and we're going to start off thinking that that's more of our approach to go. Um, and you know, they also, I mean, again, they they do they do open it up. Um, more so when they need to. And I know that's what frustrates people as well. If you just did that from the first play of the game, maybe you don't fall into those holes. Um, maybe someday Pete will do that and we'll see. I think it's somewhat overstated at times. I think if you go back and look through some of the games, you know, they've had games, I think, where they came out throwing a little bit more than people think. There's always such an emphasis on playoff games because that's what everybody's sort of lasting impression and games that get the most viewing and stuff like that. And obviously each of the last two years, they had playoff games where I think people were questioning their play calling because in each, you know, they sort of fell behind and then came then came roaring back and, and uh, you know, had a chance to win at the end. And, and uh, you know, so I think, I think each, you know, the Dallas game two years ago and the Green Bay game last year where people were like, well, if you just if you just let Russell throw more earlier, maybe you wouldn't have been in that situation to have to come from behind. But um, my short answer, I guess, after uh, after the long winded one is I don't expect any significant change. But I do think because of the fact that with Lockett having coming off a thousand yard receiving season with DK Metcalf proving beyond a doubt, he, he can be a really good NFL receiver adding Greg Olson. They have some other receivers that are a little bit, um, you know, they, they drafted a. Um, uh, or I'm sorry, they expect to get Will Disley back. Their, their other tight end, if you go back and look, was really good in the first five weeks of last season. If they get him back, you know, that's four really uh, really top quality receivers right there, um, targets you can throw to, which is probably a better receiving core than they had going into last year at this time. So I, I think I think they may go into it with a little more of a thought of throwing a little bit more because they'll have that capability. Yeah, the, your mention about how why don't they just do that all the time reminds me of every time a team has success in the two-minute drill, the hurry-up offense, everyone's like, well, why don't they just run that the entire game where it's probably not sustainable for 60 minutes where you're going to gash yourself and and get yourself in a position where the defense can make adjustments accordingly and and see something that's new to them and then adjust from there so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword and and you talk about that 2017 Houston game I'll, I'll never forget the 20 I think it was 2015 Houston game when Russell did his thing and brought the Seahawks back from down a couple of touchdowns I think Richard Sherman had a pick six in that game so yeah that was 2013 that was year they won the Super Bowl but yeah down, down at Houston when they had yeah I think they were down 20 to three and came back to win I, I had a whole diatribe before I brought you on, Bob, about how I'm a Pacific Northwest native, but I grew up a Dolphins fan, and now I work for the team. And I those games were always like we rooted against the Seahawks, me and my friends, because we were all fans of other teams. And the Seahawks found these ways to win games. We're like, how do they keep doing this? But they did it. That's what they do. That's how they've been under Pete Carroll for a long time now. And we mentioned that core philosophy of the Seahawks and the way they... You know, I like to make comparisons on these crossover podcasts where we compare these teams we're playing against and how they've built their team to what the Miami Dolphins have done recently. And one of the things that the Dolphins have done, the Seahawks have, have done for years now, is accumulate draft capital. And they do that by basically having their own board and sticking to it, trading back 
over and over again every single year. And we saw them kind of go that philosophy route with the running back position by taking Rashad Penny, like you mentioned a couple years ago. They have Chris Carson in the fold, who has been the guy and one of the top five backs last year in Pro Football Focus's forced missed tackle statistics. Carlos Hyde there now. How does this backfield shake out in 2020? Is it still Chris Carson's backfield, or is there going to be someone else that comes up and takes some carries away? Well, I think it's Chris Carson's, but the reason they went and got Carlos Hyatt is because of the injuries they had at the end of last season. Rashad Penny suffered an ACL injury in a game on December 8th at Los Angeles. Um, it sounds like he's, he's on track with his recovery. He keeps posting on Instagram and stuff like that. Um, very optimistic looking things, but still ACL injuries take nine to 10 months. And this, the team has already basically came out and said to expect him to start the year on the pup list so that they have that option to put him on the pup list when the regular season begins and potentially that he's he would be out for six games at that point before he could return. And then Chris Carson has had a couple of significant injuries in his time as a Seahawk, including the, the uh, hip injury he suffered last year. And, and it was, you know, losing both Carson and Penny um, in December of last year, which really derailed them going into the playoffs. They had to bring back Marshawn Lynch, which, which was a great story, but not really the ideal circumstances. They wanted to bring Marshawn Lynch back and, um, you know, had to go into the playoffs with Marshawn Lynch and Travis Homer, a rookie who had basically not played at all as a tailback going into the playoffs. And, um, you know, so that that they want to try to avoid that this year uh, for a team that is always going to be pretty, pretty run dependent. Um, so they brought Carlos Hyde into the mix, too. So you've got three you've got two, you know, thousand yard running backs and Carlos Hyde and Chris Carson. And then another guy, Rashad Penny, who was really uh, he's he's kind of been this this uh, huge, just big play guy for them. Um, you know, had the key touchdown running uh, to, to help win the game at Pittsburgh last year and some other, you know, he, he hasn't necessarily put up huge overall season numbers, but he's had some really key plays at some uh, key times. The big run he had against Philadelphia as well in the regular season run there last year, uh, win there last year. So, you know, I, I think they think there's a way if all three guys get healthy at midseason or whatever, that they can still find ways to use them. And, uh, you know, both, both all those guys have shown the ability to catch the ball pretty well. So, uh, you know, they could play on third down. So, you know, one of them plays on first or second down in a series, the other comes in on third down, then you rotate guys a little bit. Um, you know, again, they, they've had, they've had trouble a couple of times under Pete of basically having sort of their best team, uh, in, in the playoffs because of injuries they've suffered at the running back spot. And I think that's what he really wants to do is like we get through the regular season and we get into the playoffs and we know for sure we have, you know, at least maybe two of these guys healthy, ready to go. Um, and that, that, that we can bash teams into submission to in the playoffs. And you mentioned Travis Homer. So not to, not to leave off DJ Dallas, another Miami yeah. hurricane there in the fold, man, that guy runs hard. He runs physical. He's, he's a fun back to watch. I think he really fits in with what you mentioned. The Seahawks want to be able to bash people at the line of scrimmage and win that way. Now I had a question for you here, Bob, about the depth beyond DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, but you kind of mentioned that already. So I want to just go to this other portion of the question I had for you. What are the expectations going into year two for DK Metcalf? Because this is a guy that blew up at the combine, really had his star shine the brightest there. He falls in the draft a little bit and has the emotional video that I think everybody loved where he's on the phone with Pete Carroll talking about, why didn't you guys draft me earlier? That's just one of my favorite moments that year in the draft. Comes Comes out his rookie year, has a big time year. Now you've got him and Tyler Lockett. You talk about Russell Wilson, maybe not having the most weapons throughout the course of his career, but these two guys, man, they are big time weapons. Is the expectation for both of these guys to kind of get even better and expand upon their production last year? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the question is how much more can you do that? But, you know, the Seahawks have only had um, uh, 
two receivers break the thousand yard mark in a se- in the same season once in their history. And uh, Metcalf came close last year and Lockett did. So I think they feel like, uh, you know, that's a question a lot of people are asking, is this another year where they could do that? Both these guys could go over the thousand yard mark. Um, I answered no to that question. And the thing I did recently on the idea that if you've got Olsen and Disley, you're going to have more guys to maybe spread the ball out to, and maybe you don't have to have to depend quite as much on, on the receivers, but um, you know, so, so sort of just throwing out the idea that you'll have, a, you know, your third and fourth receivers maybe doing a lot more, assuming those guys, you know, from day one are healthy and out there and ready to go. But I think the, the, the expectations for Metcalf are, are uh, you know, off the charts. The, the only thing he really didn't do last year was he, he had a couple of a couple of games he was a little bit uh, taken out of. Um, and then he had a couple of, you know, drops slash fumbles. Um, you know, he had a couple of things like that to just sort of clean up in his game um, that were sort of, you know, kind of just felt like, rookie first year mistake kind of stuff that that happens and you know if he can if he can do that just be a little more consistent not you know uh catch everything that comes his way which is everybody's always going to have some drops and not that he had an an absurd amount but he had but he just had a couple that you know maybe changed things a little bit for him and his stats i think he could definitely do it and you know Lockett, like i say going into last year one of the things we were all right about was can he become as consistent and productive as doug baldwin had been and baldwin had been the heart and soul of the receiving court for so long and then he he retires going into the year, and so Lockett sort of moves up into that spot, and and he proved he could. Um, and it's easy to forget, maybe you know he got, he suffered a pretty pretty significant injury in their win at San Francisco in November, and so his numbers dipped a little bit um, as he was coming back from that. And you know, so again, if he can stay healthy through the whole year as well, um, you know, those numbers can go. But that's another reason why the Seahawks wanted to try to buff it up the, the receiving core a little bit this year, and part of the the thinking for going and getting. A, guy like Greg Olson is so that, you know, you're not just relying on two guys. And then if something does, you know, injuries happen in football. And so if one of those guys go out, you know, then you're not, you've still got guys to throw to you. So, you know, that's always something they're going to want to do is have as many, as many guys around. But yeah, I mean, Lockett and Metcalf, you know, as, as a receiving duo is, is as good as the Seahawks have had for quite a while. You posed what I think is a great trivia question there at the beginning of that answer. I'm going to submit my answer to you. Was it Bobby Ingram and Daryl Jackson? It was not. It was not. It's a somewhat more obscure one simply because of the era in which it was. It was uh, Joey Galloway and Brian Blades in okay. 1995. There Brian Blades, another Miami, a guy with Miami connections, <laughs> um, which is the, the, the mid 90s or a period Seahawks fans. I, I think most of them don't even remember. I actually <laughs> went to I actually covered a lot of games during that era when Dennis Erickson was coaching yep. and uh, Erickson could throw the ball. Joey Galloway was a um, really forgotten receiver kind of because only played here four years left pretty acrimoniously I don't even know if Joey Galloway ever likes to acknowledge he actually played for the Seahawks <laughs> but um, but uh, sort of joking there but just the way his career ended here I think is part of why you know people sort of forget he ever played here but if you go back look at his numbers they were really good and that Brian Blades was uh, still a really effective receiver then as well I grew up in the in the 90s in, in Washington State and I had a Joey Galloway jersey it might have been my first one actually I had a Joey Galloway and Sean Springs jersey so that was kind of my era the first game I ever went to was 1994 against the Bengals in the kingdom. Rick Meyer took a safety. That's all I can remember about the game other than the fact it was ugly and the Seahawks lost to the Bengals at home. And one of the things the Seahawks did have for a long time was a beefy offensive line during those Mike Holmgren, Sean Alexander years. Now this current Seahawks offensive line has some big bodies as well. Up front, you've got Mike Ayupati and Dwayne Brown has really given Seattle some stability there at left tackle. But then we have some camp battles to ensue, I'm sure, this coming training camp. Damian Lewis, third round draft pick. Ethan Posich, a high pick recently. Brandon Shell coming in maybe to replace a Fetty or, or George Fant. What is this offensive line going to look like in your estimation come opening day? 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, they had a pretty good offensive line. I, I guess that's debatable, depending on what you think. But I think in their eyes, they, they at least had an offensive line they felt like was was a little more stable and consistent than they'd had for a few years. And Pete, Pete Carroll said at the end of last season, um, you know, we'd like to keep as much of it together as we could. And then they really didn't. Um, you know, they, they let a few guys go like a Fetty and, um, and George Fant, uh, who signed with the Jets, and, and uh, DJ Fluker as well. They cut him. And then uh, Justin Britt, who was the starting center going into the year. So you basically could have of what were sort of your top six linemen for most of the year, if you include the way Fant was used, you know, as, as sort of that mm-hmm. sixth lineman and got re- really regular. Do you use four of those guys are gone now? And so you've got, as you mentioned, Dwayne Brown and, and Mike Ayupati, uh, but then the, the entire basically from center to the right side of the line could all be could all be completely new. And uh, yeah, they're really counting on Lewis to, to start uh, step right into the starting lineup at guard, which is why they cut Fluker. Um, Brandon Shell, I think uh, I think they're going into it thinking he's going to be the starting right tackle. And then a guy named BJ Finney, who uh, played for the Steelers the last few years and was sort of a spot starter. Um, but, you know, I think they're sort of going into it with the idea that he could start a center. But they do have, like you mentioned, Ethan Posick and some other guys that have been around for a while and a couple other free agents that they signed, like Cedric Abui. Um, and I, there's one other free agent I, I, I think I'm blanking on. Oh, and Chance Warmack, yep. Chance Warmack, uh, um, who they signed as well. Uh, so, some guys to compete. So I think they, you know, that was one of the things we were all writing about. They, I think they had 20 offensive linemen on their roster at wow. one point. They've made some moves since then, and so they don't have quite that many. But uh, you know, how many offensive linemen they had? How are they going to work them all in? I think they just want to throw a lot of these guys into the competition and see and see what happens. But this is such a weird year with everything that's going on. Obviously, when they when they sort of put that plan in place in March, they were hoping they had May and June to have all those on-field workouts and begin, begin sorting that out and who exactly is going to be where. And they haven't had that. So, you know, if, when they get on the field and training camp, that will, that will be one of the primary storylines is seeing, seeing who's the first team, you know, who's playing first team center and first team right tackle and all that kind of stuff and, and seeing how those competitions evolve. That's going to be a welcome report for fans to see coming up here on training camp soon, hopefully. And I like talking about all those parallels that I like to compare with the Dolphins and the teams we talk about here on this podcast is the number of transactions the Seahawks make. You talk about 20 offensive linemen. And I remember when they first hired Pete Carroll and John Schneider, they were a transaction machine, kind of like the Dolphins have been the last couple of years. And the area they have had continuity on up front the last couple of years, at least, is on the defensive line on the other side of the football. But I don't think the casual fan is aware, Bob, of how good some of these space eaters the Seahawks have up front. Who are the main attractions on this defensive line? And should Seahawks fans feel good about going into the year with the group they have up there? Well, I don't know that they do right now simply because they Jadavian Clowney is still yeah. out there and unsigned. And, and that was sort of the hope when the season ended was that you'd re-sign Jadavian Clowney and that would bring a real level of stability to it. And then you work some of the young guys around there. Um, it's interesting you say that because I, I, don't, I don't know, I, I don't know how, clo- how how much that perception is shared necessarily that the defensive line has been. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of conflicting opinions on how good the defensive line has been in the last few years. But people tend obviously to uh, focus so much on sacks. And the Seahawks only had 28 sacks last year. Um, I think it was the second lowest total in the NFL. And, um, you know, so that, that was something they really talked about needing to improve was their pass rush this year. And, and that's why people, a lot of people sort of just thought it was a no brainer that Clowney would be back. Like there's no way they wouldn't just, you know, um, offer him the moon to make sure he returned, but, but they sort of stuck to the way they've always done things, which is they assi- assess a value to a player and they don't necessarily want to get in bidding wars and they didn't with Clowney. And, and now he, he's still out there. I don't rule out that he could still come back. I think there's still a chance he could as, as, as it, as it comes down to, you know, the first, first, right before camp and maybe he decides to finally take an offer that they have on the table for him. But, uh, you know, otherwise you get, you got Jaron Reed and Puna Ford as your tackles. Um, 
Puda Ford, probably one of the more underrated Seahawks, uh, just not to hardcore Seahawks fans, they know all about him. But yeah, from a national standpoint, I don't know if people know how good of a player he is. And Jaron Reed, uh, uh, a great year two years ago, was suspended the first six games of last year and didn't put up the same kind of numbers. But they re-signed him to a two-year deal, um, one of the more significant uh off-season moves they made, and, and they they really like him. It's the ends that are really the question, and what are you going to get out of all those guys? You know, they, they signed Bruce Irvin and Benson Mayoa, each former Seahawks who were part of the Super Bowl team in 2013, um, hoping they'd really improve the pass rush with them. They've got, like, um, young guys, Rasheem Green and LJ Collier, who was their first-round pick last year and barely played, only played about 150 snaps all year, I think. But they're really counting on Green to be much better in year three and Collier to be much better in year two and solve a lot of issues there. And, you know, then they've got a, a few other guys to, to kind of throw into that mix. But I think most people are still expecting them to – add somebody out of, you know, if it's not Clowney, if it's an Everson Griffin, or there's some, there's some uh, veteran defensive tackle types that are still out there as well. I think people will be really surprised if they don't add something at some point early in camp uh, or before the season, which is something they've done a lot in the last few years. They made some pretty significant defensive line moves last year. Last year trading for Clowney two years ago, three years ago, trading for Sheldon Richardson. They signed like Tony McDaniel during training, you know, I think, Think mid-August one year, and he suddenly was was a starter again after he came back. So, um, you know, that's that's sort of a precedent they've set that they could do something to the defensive line and plug a guy right in there and have him be an immediate contributor. So, uh, I, I don't think they're done with the defensive line. Yeah, Tony McDaniel had some significant uh, years here in Miami as a rotational piece, a good player up front. It's funny you mentioned Clowney and Richardson. I was going to say that it's it's unique the way the Seahawks have. You know, they're in this position in the NFL where few teams are, and it's a luxury to be able to go attack your needs right up against training camp and in the front of the season. And they did it the last couple of years with Sheldon Richardson, like you mentioned, Jadavian Clowney. But then they don't go out and re-sign those guys. We'll see what happens with Clowney. Definitely an interesting topic to keep an eye on. Now, one area that I love talking about the Seahawks team with because it gives me a chance to talk about one of my favorite players in all of football. And I'll just go ahead and let you kind of take the floor on this and talk about how good Bobby Wagner is for someone that gets to see him go to work every single day. But I also want to hear about the linebacker core beyond him. Like, what's the plan beyond Wagner? Is is Jordan Brooks there to eventually take over for K.J. Wright? Did, did, did they discuss at all the decision to take Brooks over Patrick Queen? Just talk about these linebackers for a bit, if you can, Bob. Yeah, um, yeah. The, uh, first on Bobby Wagner, you're right. And I, I still don't know if he's, I, I think he's a guy who the appreciation for him is just going to grow and grow and grow what's, you know, whenever his career ends and, and uh, people will realize what, what a great career he has had. And, you know, the number of big plays he's made, um, you know, just his, his awareness, his anticipation of plays, his intelligence to, to figure out where the ball is going to be. And then the physical ability to get there, just the sideline to sideline speed, which was, I think the thing that, uh, not that he, you know, he got taken the second round. So it's not like he really fell, but still, I, you know, obviously you look at him, if you'd redrafted now, he'd be a top five pick in that draft or whatever. And that was maybe the one part of the game that people underrated in him was just that ability to, you know, the sideline to sideline speed that he has and just sort of the anticipation to get there. And then just, you know, he's really become the, the leader of that defense, you know, of the, of what was the great defense in 2013, you mentioned KJ, Wright, But Bobby and KJ, Wright are really sort of the last guy standing who've been with the team the entire time of all those guys. And, and uh, you know, as some of those guys like Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor and Michael Bennett have moved on, Bobby's become an even bigger sort of vocal leader and locker room presence to, to keep everybody together. And he signed a contract extension before last year. And, you know, they sort of made that clear at the time, like, you know, Russell's the quarterback of the offense. Bobby's, Bobby's the quarterback and the leader and the heart and soul of the defense. And, and, uh, you know, so his value to the team, I think, is only is only even greater and greater. You know, last year, and I know if you really follow PFF stats, as 
Um, you know, he, he struggled. He had a few struggles in some pass protection things because they were doing some different things. They were putting him in some different roles and all that. So I, I think maybe there was a little bit of perception from people who watched that, that he didn't have quite the year last year that he's had in previous years. I know he disputes that and would say that, you know, just sort of being in some different roles, maybe had him giving up some numbers at times that, that, um, that were a little different than he had in the past, but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think he really has shown any signs of fall off yet. I still think he's, he's, you know, as elite of a middle linebacker as there is in the NFL. Uh, KJ Wright, you mentioned, you know, he's maybe the most underrated guy throughout this whole run that he's been there. You know, he came in in 2011, really allowed them to solidify, you know, in 13, him and Bobby playing together. Uh, They played consistently together as those two inside linebackers since 2013 and um, probably will go down as the best linebacking duo in team history. Um, in the inside linebacker spots. Yeah, Jordan Brooks, the, the pick of him did sort of uh, uh, raise some eyebrows. Your question about Patrick Queen, I, I, I've got to admit, I can't remember if we asked specifically about Brooks or Queen. What I do know is that it was the fact that they thought those guys, it was why they didn't end up wanting to trade down as much because they wanted to make sure they got one of those guys. They, they thought the, they thought if, if uh, they thought the Ravens were going to take Brooks. And so it was, I mean, basically just had Brooks rated higher than queen, but they thought the Ravens were going to take Brooks. And if they let it get past that, they weren't going to be able to get him. So they wanted to take him where they did. Um, and they definitely do. I mean, he plays KJ Wright's position. So KJ Wright has one year left on his contract. There's been some speculation, even he's got a pretty big cap number for this year that they could save some money if he, if they were to release him. So I think they're going to throw Jordan Brooks right into competition at weak side linebacker. And if he's really good, I think he'll, I think he's got a chance to start from day one. And they've talked about, they could move KJ Wright to the strong side linebacker spot, but that's interesting too, because you've got Bruce Irvin there who they re-signed and said, they're going to play primarily at strong side linebacker. And then Cody Barton, who was a, a fairly high pick last year and, and ended up starting, I think the last four games of the year after Michael Kendricks was hurt. And, um, uh, so they've got some options there. So the linebacking position is really going to be interesting to watch. And it really is the first time in a long time that you go into it, not knowing for sure who it is that's going to line up next to Bobby Wagner. Especially when you have pretty much, you know, for the most part, most defenses will have two linebackers that play significant reps and everyone else is more of a rotational player or a role player in the defense. And I, I love the Seahawks on draft night talking about Jordan Brooks, Patrick Queen, that whole thing, because a lot of my friends out here are Seahawks fans and they always say, well, we can pretty much take night one off because we're going to trade out. And this year they didn't yeah. and did as they always do and take players that they feel fit their scheme or fit their program as best as they can. And you can't argue with the results. Finally, we get to the secondary, and the post-Legion of Boom era has had some ups and downs, but I think they've really uncovered some nice parts back there. You got Shaquille Griffin, who is rock solid. Trey Flowers, I'm a big fan of the way he plays. Quandre Diggs, a big boon of an in-season acquisition last year. How does this secondary shake out? Who are the five or six guys that we're going to see the most this year on the football field? Well, it's funny because it looked like that was totally set when they, they made the tra- trade for Quentin Dunbar. And then you mentioned everybody else there. And it looked like, yeah, we've got a top five of our secondary, which is different than the last couple of years. And that, and really, I think a pretty obvious starting four that you're going to have of Griffin and Dunbar as your corners, Quandre Diggs, who they acquired at midseason from Detroit last year, as your free safety, Bradley McDougal plays a strong safety and stops having to move back and forth based on who else they had a safety. So I think they felt like that was going to be much better. And Pete Carroll talked at the combine about, you know, when everybody talked about their lack of sacks and just solely like, you got to get pass rushers. He was like, you know, the, the, the coverage has something to do with that too, obviously. And you get some coverage sacks and I don't think they felt like they got as much of that last year um, as they needed at times. And so, you know, they made making the trade for digs in mid season was sort of an admission that, that, you know, obviously that they needed some help. 
Um, and then trading for Dunbar, uh, you know, was sort of another little admission that, yeah, we could use a little help at corner. And so we'll see with Dunbar's situation. Hopefully there'll be some clarity to that. I'm sure the team would like to know, I guess, if he's going to, if the, if the NFL was going to suspend him at all, um, you know, earlier rather than later, but the NFL might be waiting for the process to play out too. Um, and the legal process could take quite a while. I guess the good news is they only have him for one year on his contract. I think there'd been some, you know, some thought maybe he would, they'd, they'd be signed into an extension, but if everything gets pushed back to after the season, it might not be the Seahawks issue to deal with. You know, they just, he would just play while this is getting sorted out and, and, uh, and all that. But um, they do, you know, they also have Ugo Amadi and Marquise Blair as, as guys who can fit into that somewhere. And it'll be really interesting to see how that all, how that all does unfold. Um, both those guys have been talked about. Uh, Amadi ended last year as their nickel Blair sort of played in some sub packages last year, mostly in their dime, but Pete Carroll talked about he could be used in their nickel packages this year too. So they, they do have a lot of interesting pieces like that, you know, and then they've been another team that's been um, rumored uh, interested in Jamal Adams. And, you know, so who knows if the Jets are really going to feel compelled to trade Jamal Adams. I, I still think that's, you know, the bigger question here is are the Jets even going to want to do that? They, they've got, you know, they can, they can play hardball with them and sort of force them to, have to play and all that but if they do get to that point which i don't think would i think it'd be like a clowny thing where it wouldn't be till right before the season probably there's really no reason for the jets to have to have to do that more quickly than they than they want to but um but you never know you know you never rule the seahawks out of anything and i do know they'd be interested in jamal adams if he really did become available well hey if they want to take him out of the afc east and put him in the nfc i'm more than happy to hear about that because that dude can flat out play Last question I have for you here, Bob, and we've done this with every guest here on the uh, Know the Enemy series on the Drive Time podcast, is to ask if the Seahawks do this, they'll make the playoffs, or if the Seahawks the Seahawks will make the playoffs if blank occurs. But I think the real question here is because they've made the playoffs every year except for one since Russell Wilson got there. The real question should be the Seahawks will win the NFC West if blank. I mean, I guess I'd say Russell stays healthy, but <laughs> it's such an obvious one. He's so important to this team and, and all that. So, but I guess, you, but I guess from a strictly playing thing that has to happen is what, what we spent some time here talking about. The pass rush has to get better. They, they just have to, they have to get better playing pass defense as a whole in general. You saw, um, you know, just Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers, when he really needed to in that playoff game last year, he was able to both get time and find open receivers. Um, they had a few too many games like that at times last year. I mean, they went 11 and five, but um, so they, they weren't losing a whole lot. But I think that's the number one thing that has to happen. They had 28 sacks last year. I think they've got to get that into the mid to high 30s and just be a team that gets after the quarterback more than they did last year. Yeah, I think one of the most competitive divisions in all of the NFL, if not the most competitive this year, NFC West, and the Seahawks are right at the top of that pecking order. He is Bob Condota, Seattle Times. You can find him on Twitter, at BCondota. Bob, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. And away he goes. A really in-depth coverage there of the Seattle Seahawks. And Bob has been a Pacific Northwest lifer, covered the Washington Huskies for a long time as well. So a little bit of bad blood between he and I there, a Husky and a Cougar on this Drive Time podcast, bringing it to you here in South Florida. As for today's podcast, that is going to be my time. I'll let you guys know on Twitter what the podcast schedule is looking like for the next couple of weeks as we gear up for training camp and ramp up for the start of the 2020 NFL season. Moving down to South Florida, so I could have a couple of days off here. We'll see what that looks like. But in the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Tuned In, 
Wherever you get your podcast from, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review the show. Helps us out tremendously. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at WingfieldNFL. The team is at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank and the Audible podcast. And, of course, MiamiDolphins.com for all the written coverage of your Miami Dolphins. Until next time, fins up.